We're back with another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. As always, you can email the show at radio at thefederalist.com. Follow us on Twitter at FDRLST. Make sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts as well. Today, I'm happy to be joined by Jeannie Mancini. She is the president of the March for Life. Jeannie, welcome to Federalist Radio Hour. Well, thank you so much for having me, Emily. Of course, we've had a we, we've talked a lot about the issue of life um, in the days surrounding the March for Life and in the, in the lead up to it and in the aftermath of it. Um, so why don't we just start by you giving us sort of a download on how this year's event went and, and how you felt uh, or how you're feeling about it now that we're almost, you know, about what, 10 days <laughs> out from it. <laughs> you know, it was it was incredible. Uh, I have to say that with um, you know the the rise in Omicron viruses and then the the mayor's vaccine vaccine mandate, I I wasn't entirely sure um, how it would go. Not so much that the march itself would be problematic, but just the um, the crowd number, etc. And I was pretty blown away <laughs> seeing everyone back together again, and also just by the enthusiasm of the crowd. So I've had kind of the the unique blessing of. Um, leading the march now for this, well, this was my 10th march. And I I do believe that this crowd this year was the most enthusiastic crowd that I've ever seen. I mean, just in the way of their responses, you know, during the rally, et cetera, it was pretty remarkable. Yeah. And so tell us about why that is. I mean, I think it, it's it sort of seemed similar to me um, just in sort of being around the, the pro-lifers who'd gathered in D.C. for the march itself. Um, and the obvious kind of answer seems to be the potential for uh, an overturn of Roe uh, in the Dobbs case. Uh, but is is that really do you think that's what it was? That was there's a lot of momentum right now on the pro-life side, specifically in anticipation of that decision. I think that that's part, I, I absolutely think that's probably the largest part of it. Like, I think that's, that's simply the largest uh, thing that for the first time, you know, really in so many years, decades, there's this potential that Roe could be overturned. And in, in that happening, that the question of abortion um, restrictions and pro-life laws would return to the states where uh, some would say that it, it properly belongs. Um and I think on top of that, that people were so happy to just be back together. Of course, we did do our 48th March for Life last year in 2021, but it was a very different march with uh, with about 100 leaders um, symbolically carrying marchers on their shoulders. Um, and I think just to be back after such an, a unique few years with COVID and with so many you know tensions culturally, racially, um, politically, there was something that was very freeing about coming together and sort of the power of the solidarity of, of just the, the movement and the positivity of the young people that really was markably different than I've ever seen before. Oh, that's really interesting. Now, tell us about the theme that you guys landed on for this last March. Oh, I love our theme <laughs> this year. Equality begins in the womb um, is our theme, and, and we will continue to uh, use that theme throughout the entire year ahead. So here we, we try to choose a theme every year, Emily, that is uh, it's like a, an inflection point in the culture and that is is addressing some of the most pressing needs happening in terms of building a culture of life in that particular moment. And uh, we discerned that 
you know, the great battle of our time right now, uh, of course, is the fight to end abortion, but that we're hearing so much about equity, you know, whether it's in the halls of Congress or our dining room tables that we're talking about equity and equality and that these um, these conversations often are surrounding COVID-19, around racial injustices, um, around political things happening, but rarely is the unborn child part of that conversation. And so it seems like a great opportunity to insert into that conversation the importance of the unborn child, the child in the womb, and that equality begins in the womb. And so we chose that uh, over the summer, although we officially debuted the theme in October. And uh, interestingly, between when we chose the theme and when we debuted it, we learned this wonderful news that the Supreme Court would take up the Dobbs um, v. Jackson Women's Health Supreme Court court case. And uh, it obviously fits perfectly as well into what's happening at that level. Right. And I'm curious about the sort of persuadability. Um, and I think, you know, there, there's this is a huge conversation, of course, and how sort of public opinion has shifted on yeah. life. And I think a lot of people know that, you know, younger Americans tend to be more, pro, more pro-life at the age that they're at now than the that uh, than preceding generations were um, in the years after Roe. But I'm curious, you know, when you talk about the unborn in this context of of equality, um, and among the many people you encounter in your work as an activist for life, are you seeing more people sort of being actually persuaded by this framing that actually sort of taps into the, uh, the I guess, broader cultural conversation about equality um, and all of that? Are you seeing that sort of move the needle and bring new people into the movement? Well, whether it's the framing of that particular um, message or or other things, what I am seeing is more and more people are becoming pro-life. So I think the answer to your question is yes. And I hope that the answer is yes, uh, you know, as it relates to our theme. Um, and there, but there could be so many different things, you know, that, that play into that. So you mentioned young people and how they're uh, pro-life and it's so true. And uh, many years ago, I was a high school teacher and I was always, I was always blown away and, and just had such respect for the zeal of our young people and how they really sought after human rights, you know, for human right justices and, um, and social justice, you know, that they really worked towards that. And they didn't sort of have some of the cynicism of someone a few decades older that has encountered some problems in, in fighting for the real, the true and the good. And uh, so I think young people see social justice as beginning in the womb. And so they could, you know, frame this maybe a little bit differently, but like, Um, abortion being the human rights abuse of our day and, you know, that there should be equal rights for unborn children and all of that. And, and so, so yes. And even uh, right before I was able to get on this radio interview, I was walking our offices are um, at 14th street and and K street in Washington, DC. And I was stopped by two human rights lobbyists um, to talk to me about human rights. And so I absolutely do think that there, this is a cultural conversation and that to the extent that we can remind people that, you know, foremost among human rights is just the, the equal dignity of the unborn person and that the very basic right to life um, is that which allows all the other rights to flourish in our culture. So 
I think so. Yeah. So it's a long winded way of saying yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great. I'm, I'm also wondering when we think about Roe versus Wade, uh, when we think about Roe v. Wade, and I'm, I was born in 1993. Um, and so Roe has sort of been established law and it was, it's been treated that way um, in my entire lifetime and especially the lifetime of this generation that's even younger than me. Um, and so I think that each generation has a very different perception of, I think probably there are two competing perceptions of Roe v. Wade. One is, you know, the people who lived in a world before Roe and people who have only lived in a world after Roe. And I wonder how you think that affects the way uh, people of different, in different age groups see Roe and, and how that could affect um, their perception of what happens should it be overturned in a Dobbs decision. Great question. So central, as I'm hearing your question, central to it is the question of, you, you used interesting language. Roe is, you see Roe as established law and sort of the law of the land. This is sort of what it is. And many young people um, that are, well, young or young-ish that are under the age of 50. So, so even, you know, middle-aged people um, have grown up amidst Roe. Um, me being one of them too. Uh, and, and so what what does that mean in terms of how this impacts everything? And here's what I would say. You know, you'll often hear the argument that Roe is settled law, at least uh, in Planned Parenthood v. Casey in 1992, the Supreme Court really tried to kind of say, okay, now we've addressed this. This is settled law. And I would argue that the most kind of paradigmatic or symbolic um picture to show that that is not the case is the March for Life. So, you know, here we are, it's the 49th annual March for Life. And I think that if Roe were really settled in the hearts and minds of Americans, maybe it has been established, I guess you could say, because it's been around for almost 50 years, but, but is it settled? I think the March for Life wouldn't be in existence anymore. When the March first started, which was the year after Roe and Doe, so so the March started because of Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton, which came down that same January 22nd, 1973. Um, and together, those two Supreme Court cases allowed abortion through all three trimesters in all states in, in the U.S. And um, I th and the, the organizers of the initial March for Life thought that it would be like a one-off or a two-off event because they did not anticipate uh, that Roe would stay on the books this long. They thought that it would be corrected because it was clearly a decision of judicial activism. I mean, even in not, you know, it, not that long ago, um, before she passed away, Justice Ginsburg said that it was a decision outside of the parameters of what the Supreme Court is called to do, which is to interpret the Constitution, not to create something that's not a right that's not in the constitution and so so the fact the sheer fact that the march for life which is a protest of roe grows you know every year even in a covid environment the march is growing and the enthusiasm is growing and that at the very end of the march we're passing before the supreme court and there are literally hours of people and primarily young people who are very positive you know they've got these great positive signs and these bright hats and balloons and different things and just you know, shoulder to shoulder, it takes literally hours of the crowds to pass before the Supreme Court at the end. And then you've got women, you know, sharing their testimony of um, being involved in abortion and having regretted it. And that's going on again for hours outside of the Supreme Court. And I have to tell you, I cannot think of anything to show more concretely that Roe is not settled law than the March for Life. 
Mm, yes, that's that's such an important point, and it's one that obviously always gets brought up in Supreme Court uh, conversations and, and nomination battles, um, and it was a, a huge one in, during the Trump administration when people like Susan Collins, especially over Brett Kavanaugh, um, referred to Roe often as settled law and, and wanted to see a justice who would uh, give it the same treatment. Um, and, and on that question, I'm curious, as we're looking towards what could happen um, with Dobbs, do you expect uh, the newer justices uh, to handle the how do let me just actually ask that in a more open way how do you expect them to handle this case to the extent that we can make predictions um, from what we heard in the oral arguments <laughs> and from other things so I, we can never read the tea leaves right in terms of where a certain justice is going to go in a certain case because it's always so unique i can think of a number of instances where everybody thought we we all thought we knew where kennedy was going to um, come down on one particular issue like religious liberty, Hobby Lobby or something like that. And it really was very different in the end. And so um, so we never really know. Um, that said, I thought that the oral arguments were very positive and gauging from the oral arguments. Um, I'm very optimistic, even that Roe could possibly be overturned. And it's I'm sort of shocking myself saying those words out loud, because if you'd asked me a year ago, I wouldn't have thought that was a real possibility. But we, we don't know. The only justice that's gone on the record is Clarence Thomas on this. And he has said that he would overturn Roe. But none of the other justices have gone on the record. And so um, we all wait anxiously. It could be as early as middle March. I'm told that we get an announcement, but most likely in June. Um, so we all sort of wait together um, to see where they will stand on this one. Right. And I want to pick up on the point about um, how this was, it felt unthinkable to a lot of people in the pro-life movement and the march itself has been so critical to keeping the momentum alive um, when things really seemed sort of hopeless and impossible in terms of overturning Roe. Um, do you think, this is a question I've posed to several activists, pro-life activists on the podcast recently, do you think the Republican Party not the conservative movement, but the Republican Party is prepared for a post-Roe world and is prepared to defend the sanctity of life when it's difficult and the media is screaming about The Handmaid's Tale and, and everything else. <laughs> Do you think the Republican Party is prepared? It's an interesting question. And so so I'll, I will try to answer it. But let me say what, I, what I'm really concerned about and thinking a lot about is just more... Are we, you know, social justice warriors and pro-life movement, are we prepared? You know, and and I think we are, um, but perfectly prepared, no. Um, but we need to continue to do everything we can possibly do to help um, men and women facing unexpected pregnancies. And we've got this tremendous uh, resource uh, in the pregnancy care movement. And um, collectively, they provide literally hundreds of millions of um, free services to men and women facing unexpected pregnancies. So there's so much there. But I know that's not the question that you asked me. So I want to just answer that. I think that the broader movement needs to continue to really step up to help our moms and dads in need. Um, now, the worst messengers, unfortunately, on the pro-life issue tend to be politicians. And I, and I say that with fear and trepidation because <laughs> I'm so grateful for my brothers and sisters that are called to work on the Hill or to work in state houses. And it's a very thankless job. Um, and I'm so grateful for, you know, when they vote pro-life and all of that. So this is not a slam against them, but often people don't trust politicians when they're speaking about life. And, and the, the best messengers on these kinds of issues are people who've undergone 
um, a personal story, whether it's they were adopted or were involved in an adoption story or chose abortion and regretted it or something like that, or a doctor. So those are the people that, that we tend to trust more. So your question, you know, is the Republican Party prepared? Well, they're going to have a messaging, you know, problem, I think, on their hands, although there is another messaging problem, which is that Roe has created this chaos um, in the legal system, and it needs to be fixed. I mean, it needs to be righted, and I, I'm, you know, certainly hoping and praying that it will be. And I hope that our elected officials, whether whether Republican or Democrat, can also focus on that. Have you ever stopped to wonder why internet access is so much cheaper these days, like 30 to 40 bucks a month? Well, it's because internet service providers aren't just making money off subscription fees. They're also making money from spying on your internet activity and selling your history and data to big tech companies. So what's the best way to make sure that 100% of your data is encrypted and that your ISP can't get a hold of it? You guessed it, ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN creates a secure tunnel between all your devices and the internet so that everything you do online is encrypted. It reroutes your connection through a secure server. This blocks your ISP from seeing everything that you do online. All they can see is that you're connected to an ExpressVPN server, but nothing beyond that. And it's not just for your phone or computer. ExpressVPN works on all of your devices. It works on your tablets, smart TVs, even your router, so your entire family family can always stay protected. I can't stress this enough. ExpressVPN is so simple to use. I use it. I love it. You just open up the app, tap one button to connect, and that's it. Your data is your business. Protected at expressvpn.com slash federalist. Visit expressvpn.com slash federalist to get three extra months of ExpressVPN protection for free. That's expressvpn.com slash federalist to learn more. The good folks over at Blinkist have 22 ideas for 2022. Their goal is to empower people to grow personally and professionally by discovering content that inspires, motivates, and give them new perspectives on their lives and the world in 2022. Blinkist has the perfect content to help you be a better, smarter, and more knowledgeable you in 2022. So how are they going to do that? Well, 22 Ideas for 2022 addresses a problem we talk about all of the time on this podcast. We are drowning in content. So how do we get through all of the old content, let alone the new content, to make sure we are as informed as we want to be and as we need to be? Well, Blinkist makes it pretty easy. Some of the most popular titles in their politics section right now include What Happened, Fire and Fury, A Promised Land, Fear, A Short History of Brexit, The Soul of America, The Future of Capitalism, Black Flags, The Prince, and even Letters from a Stoic. And that's what we're talking about when we say getting through new content and old content. Probably, if you're like me, some of those books have been on your reading list, and it's so important to dimensionalize our understanding of new and historical events, of course, so that we can come to current events with the right perspective, especially in these very confusing times. And we all know what tech is doing to our attention spans. So Blinkist makes it 
easy to be a better version of yourself and to get through all of this important reading. Letters from a Stoke is a great example of something that's been on my reading list because I thought it would help me understand some of the problems that we are in right now by looking back in history. It's a confusing time. This has been on my reading list for a while, but with all the new content to sift through, it's just hard to get back to the old stuff and the new stuff and come away with the information you need to evaluate current events. Blinkist's selections make it really easy, and that is very, very helpful. I think you will all find it helpful too, and I think that we are better off as a society the more we have studied and the more reading we do. So right now, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash Federalist to start your free seven-day trial and get 25% off a Blinkist premium membership. That's Blinkist spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist.com slash Federalist to get 25% off and a seven-day free trial. Blinkist.com slash Federalist. Right. And there's a question I want to ask about the march um, almost more generally and, and more historically. It's it's always puzzled me in a, in a wonderful way um, that it really is unique in the conservative movement. There's really nothing else like that, like it. And that's because um, the sort of general, I, I guess, conservative population is not necessarily prone to activism. Um, and I'm, I'm sure you've, you've thought about this and had many conversations about this over the years. But what is it about the march and what is it about your organization and the event itself that has been able to capture so many participants annually for so long in a way that really uh, does make a difference? You know, that's a, a fun question. Um, I saw a funny little quote or sign about even introverts come out for this, something like that. Like, you know, I, I myself am an introvert. And so like, I hate crowds. <laughs> I hate crowds and I don't really like protests even to tell you the truth. So, um, so it's not, you know, oh, let's all get together for a big kind of um, gathering. That's definitely not what draws people. I think it's 110% the issue. You know, uh, people that, that come to the March for Life, they know that, um, that the inherent dignity of the unborn child is worth protecting, that we want to be on the right side of history. I mean, we've lost over 60 million Americans to abortion since Roe um, came down from the Supreme Court, from seven men on the Supreme Court. And um, we need to do our part to, to write history and, and to create a culture where life is affirmed and received and loved. And um, so that's what draws people out. Right. And in your uh, in your time with the march, how has how has how has the sort of composition of who marches maybe changed? I'm particularly curious about that in the context of what we talked about earlier. Um, it, oh, yeah. 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 That's yeah. a great question. Expound on I think it has changed a little bit. So bef uh, right before I started working with March for Life, I had worked in the pro-life movement for quite a while. And I worked at Family Research Council. And my friend, Casey Maddox, who at that point was working at Alliance Defending Freedom, came and talked to me about the March for Life. I mean, I wasn't working with the march or even on the board or anything at that point. But we talked at, uh, at length about how we needed to get more evangelicals involved in the March for Life. And so that has been a broad and, and deep goal of the march. And I think that we do 10 years into this, um, of my own time working with March, I think that we have a much more ecumenical 
um, crew that come in March. I think we do have a strong evangelical presence, um, a strong secular presence, a strong Jewish presence, um, Muslim presence, what have you. So I, I would say in some ways that's um, maybe where we've grown the most. Hmm, that's really interesting. Um, that, that is really interesting. What have you seen um, in states around the country? This is, I mean, obviously a huge, especially uh, in the context of Roe and, and overturning Roe and what that would do sort of legally to the question of life um, in, on a federal level and on a state level. Um, are the states sort of prepared? We know that certain states have passed past legislation um, from the the anti-life position um, in a way that would prepare them should Roe be overturned. But right. how do you see this playing out on the state level if Dobbs does overturn Roe and, and turn things back to the states? What have we seen on that level um, in recent years? So the March for Life began a state march initiative about six years ago, and um, particularly in COVID, when we were just ready to really roll it out, we, we got a little bit stymied. But even um, this past, in, in 2021, we were still able to do uh, four state marches. Um, so we did, we were in Missouri, we were in Pennsylvania, California, and uh, Virginia. And the Virginia March was the third annual Virginia State March. Um, and so what I want to say is that rallying pro-lifers at the level of the state is more important than it's ever been before. And we've seen the power of the grassroots. I'll give you just one small example in California, which was a pretty modest march. So all of our state marches are at the state capitol. Um, and we had marchers text in for a bad bill related to um, health insurance coverage of abortion in California. And the very next day, uh, they, they pulled that bill um, from the House floor, and, and it hasn't been reintroduced, so it's it's dead. Um, so we've seen the power of the grassroots, and that's just one small example, but there would be many other examples of that as well. And so I think that rallying the grassroots at the level of the state will be critically important. And at the March, we plan on being in all 50 states, hopefully over the course of the next five years or so. Um, now, that doesn't mean that the national level uh, is would you know be done. Like, oh, okay, this is overturned, so it's the states no immediately we'd have um and and the the pro choice uh, democrats right now are, are already thinking up all sorts of ideas um bills to introduce constitutional amendments etc um so we'd certainly have our work cut out for us at the federal level as well um and the judicial um federal level so it, it, but the role of the states would be much more critical and would you expect um, the Republican Party on a national level to continue, um, I, I mean, to continue its efforts to protect life um, in, in Congress and in uh, future potential presidential administrations? Um, or does this sort of allow them, in a sense, to put it on the back burner if they also happen to see it as, I think in, in some cases they do, this, not everyone, of course, and I don't mean to imply everyone, but some more moderate Republicans see it uh, as a political liability. Do you, How do you expect that kind of to play out politically on the Republican side, um, depending on what happens? I think that uh, Republicans would be smart to lean into the life issues, uh, to learn, you know, really uh, good statistics and data, because the large majority of Americans are with us on this issue. I mean, look in the United States. 
we're one of only seven countries around the world that allows late term abortion, you know, with the likes there of North Korea and China. And uh, to the extent that uh, our elected officials can can just speak about the extremism of where we are and really the extremism of the other side on this issue, it is a winning issue. So they would do well to to lean into it. One quick example of this um, sort of a counter example. I'm a resident of Virginia. At our Virginia March for Life this year in September, we really encouraged voter registration and voting pro-life. Of course, Terry McCullough very much ran with abortion at the forefront of his campaign, and, and we saw how that went. Um, even you know, in an environment where Texas has passed a heartbeat law, um, and there were all sorts of you know interesting messages around that, Terry McCullough did not win on a pro-abortion agenda, and so I think that that that's very positive for us. Um, and um, and I, I'm sure that elected officials are watching states like Virginia closely to see what's popular. Yeah, and that's another question I was going to ask, speaking of Virginia, was do you think some of the extremism um, that we've seen from, you know, Ralph Northam or Andrew Cuomo, and there are many other examples, of course, around the country. Do you think some of the extremism that does set the United States apart from uh, other civilized nations has uh, backfired in a way and that, you know, it's the policies yes. are, are abhorrent, but is that really, is that bringing people over? Absolutely. Uh, yes. And I can think of some tangible uh, evidence of that. So our first Virginia March for Life was just a few months after um, then Governor Northam had made the horrific statements about uh, really afterbirth abortion. And, um, you know, anyways, and so um, we got 7000 people out for that first Virginia March for Life. And I'm pretty sure it was a response to Governor Northam's um, horrific comments. And I can tell you that even people who self-identify as being pro-choice were reaching out to me at that point just saying everybody knows that a, a seven pound baby that's just not been yet been born or already has been born deserves you know the the right to life um and uh as for uh governor cuomo and some of the different extreme things that happened in um in new york a few years ago right around the same time frame as governor northam made these comments uh there was a, a marist poll that was taken um, right before uh, sort of New York State House passed their um, terrible, very pro-abortion law and then lit up the, the Empire State Building, mm -hmm. paying, you know, favorable towards that. And then and then Governor Northern made his comments and the, the polling taken sort of before those two months and after showed a radical shift into the direction of life. So I think it backfired tremendously and, and moved in the direction, moved, people's hearts and minds moved in the direction of life. That's really fascinating. And you're getting into the reality that this has been, uh, the Democratic Party has been radicalized. It's, it's sort of official apparatus have, has been radicalized when we talk about life and we talk about abortion. Um, and why do you think it is that while these things I think pretty clearly backfire and are morally abhorrent. Um, why do you think it is that Democrats have not been able to sort of distance themselves from abortion extremism and don't even seem to want to? Um, you know, right. these, these are pretty establishment figures between Andrew Cuomo and, and Ralph Northam. Um, why are Democrats, why have they shifted from safe, legal, and rare to late term, you know, post, post birth? What's going on with them? I don't know. I wish that I did have the answer to that. And I, that, I was thinking the exact same thing that you just said. We've moved from safe, legal, rare to abortion on demand without 
apology paid for by your taxpayer dollars until birth, you know? And um, it's all I know is it's sure not popular with mainstream America and um, it's not winning elections for them. And I, I don't know why they've gone so extreme on that. I mean, the abortion lobby is obviously well healed. And so there's certainly money, but, um, and so, so perhaps it's the money, but boy, isn't that heartbreaking to consider that they're really out of touch with mainstream Americans on this. And here's one, one data point, one, um, one uh, polling piece, um, is that I think we're talking 12 years strong now, something like eight out of 10 Americans would limit abortion in the United States at most of the first three months of pregnancy. And so, of course, with the March for Life, we are trying to create a culture where all life is welcomed. Um, but even if we could move in that direction of limiting late term abortion in this country, that would be moving in the direction of life. And that's just reflective of where most Americans stand on this, including most pro-choice Americans. So why? The party platform is so extreme. I don't know. I, I just don't understand it. Yeah, and they seem to be, and this is something I've I've loved seeing coming out come out of the pro life movement in in recent years. They do seem to be in the thrall of an an industry of an abortion industry. Um, it, do you see that also as as part of the relationship between the Democratic Party and the abortion industry as as boosting uh, their support for radical policies? Absolutely. Absolutely. So you'll see um, at the, you know, at the convention, the Democratic National Convention, you'll have um, the head of Planned Parenthood speak. So Planned Parenthood, of course, is a nonprofit organization. It's um, the world's largest abortion provider, but they also get like a, a full one third of their budget from government funding and They've got a very uh, well-heeled political action network. I remember Cecile Richards, then president of Planned Parenthood, when she started working there, she said her her single goal was to make it the most powerful kick-butt political organization out there. So, <laughs> yes, I mean, to answer your question in short, yes, I do think that they're really um, the abortion industry and um, and elected officials to the left are very much working together. Yeah. And so one other question on, on that point is, uh, do you think that, well, so I read a, I read an article recently from a, I think it was a feminist, you know, anti-life activist who was writing about how actually they're sort of prepared for this post-Roe, potential post-Roe world because of the abortion pill. Um, and because they have intentionally created laws and passed laws in many states that probably seem innocuous to Democrats and perhaps even to moderate Republicans that um, enable women to get the abortion pill delivered across state lines or in various different ways that make it so much easier. And so that's clearly part of their playbook here. Can you talk about what we've seen in terms of the laws and the technology of these abortion pills? Yes. So this is what I would describe as the new frontier of, of abortion. And it's really scary. So uh, anyone who's honest will um, and who's looked at the sort of the, the medical research on this and, and just the gosh, the FDA reports will tell you that chemical abortion is much harder on women's health than surgical abortion. They run into something like seven times as many complications. And these are things like hospitalizations, hemorrhaging, et cetera. Um, the cause of death being chemical abortion happens much more frequently in, in women than surgical abortion. Um, and the woman herself has then become the abortionist and she sees the child pass. So they're increasing 
psychological consequences to this. It's horrible on women. And gosh, this is this is a really old, old piece. But I can remember years ago reading a Marie Claire uh, reporter wrote this article about her own experience with chemical abortion. She was very pro-choice, but was just furious that she wasn't given the facts on how hard this was going to be on her um, health and how dangerous it was. And so anyways, um, yeah, I mean, essentially, the FDA has decreased regulatory oversight of mail-in chemical abortion now. And I think women are going to be the ones to suffer this. And it's just this whole new frontier that we've got to start strategizing about and figuring out because it's, this is not, this is dangerous for women. uh, And it's, it's sort of a scary new thing. So it's something that we're all thinking about. And I I wish that I had a a great sort of response and answer other than to say, this is, this is not going to go well. Yeah. And it's happening so quickly. And it is, Mm -hmm. it seems to be exactly as you said, I mean, they see it as the next frontier. um, And it's it's sort of their playbook. Yeah. By the way, Emily, and not that I know I'm mentioning public opinion polls a lot. And, you know, not that that's sort of the be all end all, but it is interesting to know where Americans stand on this because changing hearts and minds is, you know, so hard to do. But I'll tell you, the American public is not favorable towards uh, the ability to get chemical abortion in the mail. Uh, 63%, I think, are unfavorable towards this in, in a Maris poll that came out just the day or two before the March for Life. So it's not popular, again, with, with Americans, including Americans. What's remarkable of that is if people had even more information than what the media presents about these pills, I, those numbers would almost certainly be higher. So they're high to begin with. But imagine That's if the right. media was more and, and the and Democrats were more honest about the process um, that these pills induce. Now, my last question is we've seen a lot of um, well, at least maybe on Twitter, there's been some conversation and it has translated into bills like uh, Senator Romney's bill um, on it was on child payments that started before a baby was born um, and that offered some sorts some sort of benefits uh, that started before birth and support government support that starts before birth, which is really interesting because it, it gets into the conservative movement's kind of question over government yeah. support in general. <laughs> but it, it's been sort of fascinating to see um you know, the the new conversation about that. Have you seen more talk about that on the right or in the, the pro-life movement and the conservative movement that we should rethink or we should actually, you know, strengthen these benefits so that if they exist, they absolutely should, um, you know, begin before birth? And is that something you think um, is, a, is a good idea? I think that more conversation needs to have around that. It needs to ha- happen around this. And I, I personally do think broadly, it's a very good idea. I think of uh, Texas um, simultaneous to passing the heartbeat law. They also um, freed up a hundred million in resources for women and men around the state who are facing unexpected pregnancies to help them with things like childcare and diapers and formula and housing and all of those kinds of things. So I think that we'll see more of that. Uh, so much of the heart of of abortion jurisprudence has to do with um, undue burden, right? Undue burden. And this whole concept of burden um, legally is something that's interesting. And I think to the extent that we can help with, with relieving that burden and helping to shoulder that burden is something that, that we're all very much called to in building a culture of life. Oh, that's a really good point. Um, I, I love that argument. Jeannie Mancini, president of the March for Life. Thank you so much for your time this afternoon. Thanks so much for having me. I thoroughly enjoyed it.
Absolutely. We'll have to do it again soon. Uh, I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. You've been listening to another edition of The Federalist Radio Hour. We will be back soon with more. Until then, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray.